Hello and welcome to my inaugural episode of Historically Inaccurate Wholesome Heritage Moments with Megs. That's right, this is finally happening. All five of you that have requested this, I'm making your dreams come true. This is the podcast where I'm still going to try and pronounce things correctly, but probably won't. And I'm going to try and get the facts right, but I might not always. We're going to delve into extended cuts of some of my most popular TikToks from Megs Reads Good. Because with only 10 minutes and community guidelines, some things get left on the cutting room floor if they ever made it into the video to begin with. So here you'll get to hear all of your favorite stories as extended cuts with extra information and my lukewarm takes. So grab a hot cup of cocoa and make yourself comfortable because I have feelings. Today's episode, we're going to explore the Lionsgate Bridge history a little bit deeper. This video was pretty popular, and because it is such a long story and has a deep history, not all of it got to make it into the video. So we're going to revisit some old facts, and we're going to learn some new facts, and it's going to be a good time had by all, I hope. So as we know, Lionsgate Bridge wasn't always there. Initially, it was the first Narrows Ferry, which was operated from 1909 to 1947. And this is why when the Lionsgate Bridge was initially opened, it was known as the first Narrows Bridge because it bridged the first Narrows. This is also why in the 1950s, when they built the Iron Workers Memorial Bridge, it was initially known as the Second Narrows Bridge until 1994, when they renamed it in honor of the iron workers who sadly passed during the collapse of the Second Narrows. The Lionsgate Bridge spans the Burrard Inlet and joins the city of Vancouver to the cities of North Vancouver and West Vancouver. And why is it called the Lionsgate and not the First Narrows? Excellent question. I have an answer for you. So the Lions refer to the pair of mountain peaks that are visible to northbound traffic when you're traveling towards North Vancouver on the Lionsgate Bridge. These two mountain peaks are the reason why the concrete lions at the base at the south end of the bridge were put there. They were designed by sculptor Charles Morega and were added in 1939. But those two peaks, they weren't always called the lions. Historically speaking, archaeological records indicate that the Coast Salish First Nations have lived in the Burrard Inlet area for between eight to 10,000 years. And for the duration of that time, those two mountain peaks they were known as the Two Sisters. And why were they called the Two Sisters? Well, the legends tend to vary depending on which First Nations group you hear the story from. So I'm going to go with the version that was told to poet Pauline Johnson by Chief Joseph Capilano. He told Pauline the story for her collection of stories called The Legends of Vancouver, if you're interested in checking that out. So legend has it that the great Taiyi, the chief or leader of the lower coastal group, was at war with the people of the upper coast. So the war was long, it was violent, it was bloody, and the chief of the lower coast, he had two daughters who were coming of age, and traditionally during this time, they would hold a potlatch for the daughters in celebration of their impending womanhood. The daughters ended up approaching their father and they said, listen, instead of celebrating us, let's extend the invitation to those of the upper coast in a 
symbol of peace. And their father was like, well, I mean, if you're sure and this is what you want, we can definitely do that. And they're like, yes, this is what we want. So he sent some of his people up to the northern coast and he invited them down for potlatch. And they ended up feasting for days and dancing by the fire. And eventually they put down their weapons and they decided that they would coexist peacefully. The people of the upper coast were so grateful to those of the lower coast for extending their hand in an act of peace. And because the two sisters acted in such a selfless manner, the great Segali Tai'i, who is a spiritual leader, a celestial being who actually carved out the coastal mountain range, said that he wanted to honor the two sisters by making them immortal and placing them on top of the mountain range in the highest place so that they could stand as both a reminder and a protector of the peace treaty that they had fostered. And so for thousands of years, these two mountain peaks acted as a reminder of the peace treaty that the Coast Salish peoples had made with each other. And in the late 1800s, when European settlers were crossing Canada, they were replacing Indigenous landmarks with the names of their previous homes. And this was a slap in the face to the Indigenous people. It was around this time that former Premier of Prince Edward Island, John Hamilton Gray, showed up in BC to sit on the Supreme Court as a judge. And he saw the two sisters and said, hey, don't those look like the lions from Trafalgar Square? I think we should rename them the Lions, and that is why we know them by their colonized name. So how did the bridge come to be? Well, an initial vote in 1927 was taken to approve the bridge, but it was turned down as uh, locals were worried about disrupting Stanley Park. In fact, the CPR, the Canadian Pacific Railway, opposed the bridge because they had holdings in Shaughnessy and downtown Vancouver that they didn't want devalued. And they knew that by joining North Vancouver to downtown Vancouver, that it would take people away from the areas that they were occupying that the CPR owned. One of the key people in making the bridge happen was Alfred James Towell Taylor, or AJ, as we will call him from now on. He was an engineer who convinced the Guinness family to invest in land on the North Shore. So AJ was an entrepreneur who saw potential in West Vancouver. He knew if they built a bridge, it would increase the desirability of West Vancouver and thus increase his investments over on the North Shore. So AJ went to London where he met up with the Guinness family and he convinced them to establish British Pacific properties with him. AJ's proposition was appealing to the Guinness family as private foreign investment looked very appealing compared to Britain's high tax regime. So British Pacific Properties ended up buying around 4,700 acres in West Vancouver. And the deal that they were proposing to the municipal government would give the developers the right to toll the bridge and the ability to develop those 4,000 plus acres in West Vancouver. This land ended up being sold to British Pacific Properties in 1931. They ended up buying the land for 1875 a square foot, which was incredibly cheap uh, because the land was purchased during the Great Depression when the municipality was on the brink of bankruptcy due to the fact that residents were unable to pay their property taxes. The Guinness family agreed to fund $1 million in local improvements over a five-year period and to construct the Lionsgate Bridge as part of this land deal. 
In total, they ended up paying $75,000 for the land. In 1933, they took a second vote to build the bridge, and it passed with 70% in favor. The government approved the build as long as local workmen and materials were used to help provide employment and boost the local economy during the Great Depression. The documentation that dictated the build was the 1933 First Narrows Bylaw, and it authorized construction, but it also included a mandate that no Asiatic person shall be employed in or upon any part of the undertaking or other works on the bridge. Item number four in the bylaw regarded workmen, artisans, mechanics, and laborers. You have to remember the bridge was built during the exclusion era. The exclusion era was when the Exclusion Act came into effect. It was basically when the BC government pressured the federal government to enact the Chinese Immigration Act, which was known as the Chinese Exclusion Act. It was enacted on July 1st, 1923, which was known back then as Dominion Day, but we now know it as Canada Day. And uh, it no longer permitted persons of Chinese origin to enter Canada. The Exclusion Act was in place from 1923 to 1947 when it was repealed. During that time, fewer than 100 immigrants from China entered Canada. It was essentially legally sanctioned racism. I know that there have been some questions about what happened to the First Nations who were living at the northern end of the bridge. Well, the bridge is technically built on Capilano Reserve, which is land that is occupied by the Squamish Nation. To build the bridge, they needed almost 10 acres of land on the North Shore, which was part of the reserve and had been claimed by the Squamish Nation. The land was transferred to British properties under the advisement of the Department of Indian Affairs, and First Nations ironworkers uh, actually did help work on the bridge on the northern end, so it did uh, offer employment to First Nations workers. The bridge was designed by Montreal firm Montserrat and Prattley, and construction began on March 31st, 1937. The bridge opened on November 14th, 1938, and the cost was $5,873,837, which would be around $188 million today, which actually is not that much, because the port man was like over a billion. When it opened, it was the longest suspension bridge in the British Empire and was also the biggest construction project ever undertaken in Canada during the 1930s. Not only that, it has a ship's clearance of 200 feet, which I find utterly and completely terrifying. I know that somebody commented that their friend couldn't drive over the bridge because it has this really arched bridge deck. So when you are driving towards the North Shore, you look like you're driving into nothing. And that is absolutely terrifying. Also, the scene from Final Destination 5 where the bridge crumbles and falls apart probably did not help this fear at all. On May 29, 1939, King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, presided over the official opening of the bridge. It was originally told to help cover the financing. It was a 25 cent charge for each car or horse and carriage, and five cents for cyclists and pedestrians. As part of the original bylaws, the government did say that the Guinness family was not allowed to sell the bridge to anybody else. If they wanted to sell it, they had to sell it back to the government. And in 1955, they did just that. They sold the bridge to the province for the exact same amount they built it for, 0.8 million. 
And that was pretty generous of them because the original amount would have doubled by 1955. So AJ did ultimately end up being right. The bridge contributed to the population boom in West Vancouver and they ended up having to split the lanes and install overhead signals to help with traffic. There were three lanes in total with third lane being kind of like a passing lane, but obviously that would wreak havoc. And so a rudimentary signal system was installed to help people not, you know, run into each other. In 1963, the tolls were removed, and in 1975, the concrete bridge deck was starting to deteriorate and was replaced section by section with a lighter, wider, and stronger steel deck. In 1986, the Guinness family gifted the lights that adorn the bridge now in honor of Expo 86, and in 2009, the lights were upgraded to more energy-efficient LEDs. And like most things in Vancouver, these lights actually have a nickname. They're called Gracie's Necklace, and that's named after the Member of Parliament who helped make it happen. The gift was actually coordinated by MP Grace McCarthy, and that's why the lights are nicknamed after her. In the mid-90s, options for dealing with the aging bridge were discussed, and twinning the bridge was one of these options. It's actually in 1994 that the Squamish Nation actively partnered with a Montreal engineering firm to create a proposal to twin the Lionsgate Bridge. This was one of eight public proposals that were presented to the Provincial Transportation Department, and the $225 million project would have ended up being privately funded They believed that the project would be beneficial for First Nations on the North Shore as it would create jobs and allow them to ensure that the environment would be protected. In order to help fund the cost, the bridge would have been tolled with the band taking a percentage of the $2 toll, and that was expected to help pay off the bridge in 20 to 25 years. Obviously, the government did not go with that plan as it was the most expensive plan, but imagine if we had had to of the Lionsgate Bridges. Could they not have been renamed to the Two Sisters? Ultimately, the government decided to replace the entire suspended portion of the bridge, and this is what happened from 2000 to 2001. It was the first time that a suspended structure of a major bridge was replaced while the bridge was still in daily use. They actually like lowered pieces down to a barge. It's very impressive. On December 10th, 2004, the bridge was designated a National Historic Site of Canada. And how could it not be when movies like Tron Legacy, Deadpool 2, The Sixth Day, and as I mentioned, Final Destination 5 have all been filmed there. It's iconic. But you know, we mentioned British properties a little bit. Let's talk about what British Pacific properties got up to on those 4,000 acres. So as this land was being developed during the exclusion era, the neighborhood had a strict whites-only policy. The property titles barred sales to, and I quote, no person of African or Asiatic race or African of Asiatic descent, except servants of the occupier of the premises in residence, shall reside or be allowed to remain on the premises. This also excluded people of Jewish heritage, which... Ironically, the first synagogue in West Vancouver was actually built across from the entrance to British properties. In 1978, Section 222, is it 2222? I don't know, whatever, was introduced into BC's Land Title Act, which makes any covenant that discriminates based on sex, race, nationality, ancestry, or place of origin null and void. So even though this was in people's covenants, it didn't actually apply to them anymore. 
but they were still in the covenants. And in 2020, Vancouver City Councillor Marcus Wong put forth a motion for the cancellation and striking of these covenants because he grew up in British properties and he always knew that if he had grown up there in another time, he wouldn't have been allowed to live there. Unfortunately, when the act was passed in 1978, it didn't empower the Land Title and Survey Authority to proactively look for discriminatory language from covenants that had been registered prior to 1978, which is why this year... In 2022, another landowner found the language still existed in her land title when she had to submit it for renovation permits. In 2008, when she purchased her property, she had requested the city remove no Jews and no Chinese from her property title. And even though Marcus Wong's 2020 motion had passed, the language still remained in these land titles and covenants. Now, the issue will be submitted for consideration at the 2022 Union of British Columbia Municipalities Annual Convention in September, but it's going to cost the city of North Vancouver a lot of money to search for these titles and make these changes. So hopefully they'll do the right thing and they'll make it happen because I can't imagine what it would feel like to live on land that you would have not been allowed to live on prior to 1978. And that's it. That's that's all I got for you. I'm sorry. No, I'm not really sorry. I hope this episode was everything that you had hoped and dreamed it would be. Hopefully I'll do them weekly. We'll see. Trying to stick to things, you know. Trying to commit. But until next time, thank you for being here. I appreciate you. You are the best. See you later.